You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim in the name of Allah the gracious the merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome again to the Drive Time show here at Voice of Islam where we often bring you you know two topics. Um, discussing uh, relevant topics as well as you know historical topics and many other topics um, uh, which are all important of course uh, so today the two topics that we have um, for you uh, and you know for your input for your opinions for you to call in and discuss um, in the first hour um, we'll be discussing a family in crises we'll be looking at the the impact of of of, of financial costs, uh, you know, uh, all over the UK, you know, especially in the West as well. We mm. see, um, and in the second hour, we will be, you know, uh, you know, the topic that we have is sports, a level playing field. Um, with me, uh, I have my co-presenter in studio, Fahim Nasir. Assalamualaikum, Fahim. How are you doing? Assalam. I'm good. How are you? Good. Alhamdulillah. It's good to be back with you again. Of course. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we're discussing, you know, uh, family, you know, uh, especially in the time that we're going through. It's, it's, this discussion is not something that we're having on, 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 on this radio station, but this is something that's probably happening in every household, mm. right? So, what, uh, what is it that you know, uh, when we're discussing this, this topic, especially with regards to, you know, the cost of living crisis, you know, how it's affecting all parts of society, you know, whether, uh, you know, uh, even the middle class now, right? Mm. They're the ones that that's been hit the most. Definitely. So, 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 so headlines, you know, every day on its adverse impact. So, what, what is it that you take from it? I mean, do you have these discussions at home as well? Or, yeah, I think that um, you know, it's it's a difficult time. I yeah. think that that's been established by the um, cost of living mm-hmm. crisis that we're, that that's impacting a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, there's so many things, there's so many examples of the crisis that are are happening. You mm-hmm. know, lawyers are predicting that there's a r- rise in divorce cases. Right, mm-hmm. um, s- save the children. Looking at Scotland, concluded. Yeah. That when before the crisis, families had to choose between heating or eating, <coughs> mm-hmm. they now find themselves unable to do either. Mm. So it's it's not even about hey, there's a choice between hey, I've got to sacrifice this for this. Is mm-hmm. I can't do either. Mm. So clearly, there's a big change. And you know, the the gingerbread charity for single parents, mm-hmm. you know, they've warned that in March this year that 95% of single parents they surveyed had already been worrying about the cost of living crisis over mm-hmm. the last. 12 months <coughs> mm-hmm. uh, with 29% of those uh, surveyed already cutting back on food and 36% on heating so this is this is all before um inflation went over 10% and the you know 
as we all know, the latest hike in energy bills. Mm-hmm. So I think what we're trying to discuss and, and understand is how can families cope during this time, right? It is very, very, you know, difficult, um, you know, for people. And, you know, there are, there are various surveys done and all of these things. Um, you know, one I'm look, looking at right now, um, you know, basically, uh, they it's known as crisis fund, you know, basically provide grants for food, utility bills and other you know sort of essentials and this report um you know, the summary of it basically mention it mentions uh that tens of thousands of families in 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 their services are basically struggling to make ends meet and mm. what that means is basically more than 11,000 families and 26,000 children have been helped by uh, this 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 crisis fund yeah and um you know this includes 6,000 children and uh, you know so on and so forth and then you have you know universal credit which is which isn't pro- basically protecting uh families because the the amount is basically the same and uh, whereas the cost of living the inflation you know you know what what it has done to our economy um you've got 54% of families receiving emergency help over the winter were you know over the winter were on universal credit and 18, 18% of applications highlighted the 20 reduction the 20 pound reduction actually in the value of universal credit can you imagine that e- instead of increasing it is, is it has been reduced mm. um and 39% of applications last winter were triggered by a recent you know increase in household costs so you've got all of these uh, you know issues at hand and 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 also you know you w- when you actually zoom out and and you look why this has happened of course we always refer to covid this is one thing that we always go back to covid 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 of course it it, yeah. it, it impact economy but then you know you've got um, things that are happening on a much greater scale, much dangerous scale right now in the world. Mm. Um, you know whether it's you know Ukraine, you know, um, <coughs> and and Russia, and especially the involvement of the West in there as well. Yeah. So so that has a huge impact, and 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 it's had a spiral effect in a in a in a, in a way. And uh, the supply, you know, the supply chain that has been broken. Yeah. And uh, well, politics definitely isn't helping, is it? <laughs> exactly. So it's just uncertainty. There's not there's not an element of trust. People don't have trust in the in the government. Um, and uh, it's n- it's because uh, I think one of the first things they said, I was, I was reading somewhere um, with regards to actually war and 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 you know the circumstances that actually occur is is the loose of trust is the mm. first thing. You know, um, and and it's, it's well, not trust is so important, right? Mm-hmm. That's the thing it, in 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 any relationship. That's with with governments as well. If mm-hmm. you don't trust <coughs> the people responsible for you, you don't trust the people with you. Mm. Then you know you, there's going to be friction and there's going to be uh, uncertainty because mm-hmm. can you really ever trust someone? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like if if they have done something to to lie to you or something will you ever be able to trust them properly and i think that that's where there's a lot of issues and you know with the current political scene at the moment in the uk as well there was there was a loss of trust in in the leadership and that's why it's it's changed right? absolutely yeah i mean i mean the impact that that all of that has that then on 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 on, on the family life and you know uh you know this uh you know, with regards to children and all of that, of course, you know the Holy Quran, you know, speaks about this, and fun- fun- fundamentally, basically establishes you know certain principles in place where it says that um, we know that from, from our perspective, we believe this that you know um, that our our risk, we call it right, mm. um, uh, and that doesn't just mean our food, right? Ev- ev- that basically, in in a wider context, context, it means our ability to do basically anything. Right, yeah. it it basically comes from God, although you need effort and all 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 you know all of these things. So uh, so I mean, but you do see that when there is 
you know, uh, you know, crises like this that that they'll, as you were mentioning, there'll be you know rising divorce. Mm. What that does is then that impacts the children, but and that automatically is going to burden the system even even more. Yeah. So you see, when there, when there is when there is peace in 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 place, everything runs so smoothly, right? And yeah. and you take these sort of things for really for granted in a, in a in a, in, a, in a way. And you know, chapter sixty four verse sixteen says, "Verily, your your wealth and your children are a trial, um, but with Allah is an immense reward." Um, and you see this that that there comes a time when when your wealth and and even your children do become your you know a means for your trial. Mm. And uh, you know, of course, their their wealth and children are are, are, a, are a great blessing of Allah. But in times of crisis, you know, they can become a burden. Mm. And, and 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 sometimes. Um, you know, lack of wealth is something I, I, I shouldn't say. Sometimes, I think lack of wealth is is because you need such certain basic necessities, mm. right? Um, it, it it really strains the family relationships, and uh, you know, breakdown in relationships, uh, especially between parents and children. Because children are like, what what have you actually done for me, or what are you actually doing for me? Because from from the children's perspective, they don't they don't understand what the parents are going through, mm. you know, um, and and so it's it's very very diff- difficult. Um, now you know. Speaking about uh, you know the case against families, you know during the pandemic, some families actually you know clearly you know struggled. You know uh, you know stay safe order for from from the government was was hard for uh, victims of you know domestic abuse during lockdown, and you know for for the, for the, for, the, for them the home is equal to a place of danger, uh, not re- refuge. Um, well, that's sad, isn't it? Of it's course, sad. I mean, it's, I know that the the lockdown was hard for mm-hmm. everyone, right? But there are people who had situations where their house wasn't somewhere where they could feel mm-hmm. safe. Yeah, and you know we've seen the impact of that, right? Absolutely. Um, we do want to discuss this further, but I think we do have um, a pre-recorded interview that 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 we did want to play. We you know we spoke to Doctor. Josie Dickerson, who is a director, uh, Better Start Bradford Innovation Hub, and Bradford Inequalities Research Unit, to to actually talk about the wealth inequalities and 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 fam, fam, family time. So here is that interview. Um, we've got with us uh, this afternoon Dr. Josie Dickerson, who is director of Better Start Bradford Innovation Hub and Bradford Inequalities Research Unit. Good afternoon. Welcome. Assalamualaikum and peace be on you, to, uh, Dickerson. Thank you for taking time out and coming on to our show. That's no problem. Thank you very much for having me. Um, could you tell me you have looked into many aspects of health in Bradford and the surrounding areas? In what sense is Bradford still a deprived area? Bradford's a very, a very vibrant and amazing city to to live and work in. Um, we have huge um, varieties of, of ethnic and cultural um, backgrounds and lots of wonderful people to be working with. But there is, unfortunately, a really difficult side to Bradford. So we know that um, the the life ex- healthy life expectancy and life expectancy in Bradford in, in, in inner city areas is much, one of the worst in the country. Some of our children, again, living in inner city areas, have um, a much uh, not a great start in life so that by the time they get to school they're less ready to learn they're more at risk of obesity already and this is happening at quite an early age which means that actually you know this has implications for people's health and well-being for the rest of their lives hmm. 
Um, and a lot of the a lot of the problems do come from um, living in poverty and um, all of the sort of negative aspects of that about you know being able to afford a healthy diet, being able to um, achieve a healthy lifestyle, and, and live in sort of healthy homes. So yeah, there there's some real challenges in the area still that are very very much in, entrenched in the city. Now, in your study of the impact of COVID in Bradford. Why did the mental health of mothers suffer? Yeah, so we did a lot of work during COVID-19 because we knew it would have um, the restrictions around COVID-19 to protect the health of people would have a big impact on um, families, particularly vulnerable families living in Bradford. Um, And we found quite high levels of um, clinically important symptoms of poor mental health in our mothers. Um, but when we looked into this in more depth, we, we began to understand that actually some of the biggest risk factors for this were um, the financial security of the family. So mothers that were um, really struggling to, to make ends meet during COVID were those that were having um, really poor mental health and also those that were socially isolated. So those that had very little um, social support around them and also that felt quite lonely during COVID-19. Now, to what extent would you say these mothers were already in a state of crisis? I mean, what seems to be, I'm not saying, I'm not going to say it's, 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 it's a, uh, there's a pattern, but everyone seems to blame the pandemic. Um, mm. and, and clearly the pandemic kind of exacerbated a problem that was already there. Is that the same in this case where these problems and challenges faced by these mothers were already there and they were kind of highlighted more because of the mm. pandemic? I think that's a really good question and a really important point. So we do know that quite a lot of our families were already living in, you know, we were already struggling financially. And some mothers were already having um, mental ill health and, you know, sort of clinically significant symptoms. But because of our study, we knew how things were before the pandemic came along. So we've been following our families since 2007, so a long time before the pandemic. So we were able to look at change caused, or well, we don't know it was caused, but during the pandemic compared to before it. So there was a definite increase in the number of mothers who were having um, mental ill health concerns. And there were also a a huge increase in the number that were financially insecure. And obviously because of the restrictions and the cautions, um, you know, women that didn't have a big family around them were finding themselves perhaps more lonely than they were before. So you're absolutely right. It's not a new problem, but yeah. it, it became a lot worse. And, and everything around it became a lot worse because of, of all of the restrictions. Yeah. It just added on to the pressures that we're already feeling. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Now, nearly half the sample you analysed were people of Pakistani origin. And one interesting finding from your study was that mothers of Pakistani origin live living in large households, so extended families, were less likely to suffer from an increase in depression during a lockdown. Why do you, why do you think that is? And before you do that, the, I'm asking there was an increase in depression, so there was still an element of depression there, but it was less in Pakistani women than uh, people of non-Pakistani origin. Is that correct? 
Yeah, we, I mean, we did find an increase um, overall, and we didn't find any difference by particular ethnic groups. So when we compared Pakistani heritage women to white British women to other ethnic groups within the, the city, it was more around the circumstances, as I've already said, about loneliness and about financial security. And I think actually when we... You know, the more we understand about the Pakistani heritage families living in Bradford, the more we see that there are some real positives and strengths in the, the, the sort of the way that, you know, these communities live that gives you a buffer and some resilience from big shocks like the pandemic. Um, so, you know, we've, we've got multi-generational households, um, a, a huge number of social support around you, and also more financial resilience. So even people that were perhaps furloughed and, and had lost some of their wage, by living in a, a bigger household, there was some buffering around the, the impact financially, but also because there's just so much social support. So even when we were all isolating, if you're isolating in a big family home, you still got a great community around you whereas some of our other families and particularly perhaps you know people that have come migrated but don't have family in the area and don't have um you know strong friendships were so isolated and without any other support to to give them any financial aid or any emotional support so i think we found this as quite a, a positive story to tell alongside this that there are some real strengths of, of living you know, in the way that our Pakistani families do in Bradford. So, so the community spirit was kind of part and parcel of, of some of the, the the remedial actions of some of the challenges faced due to the pandemic? I think so. And I think just the, you know, the, the way that the community was already set up and working, yeah, with the, the big sort of multi-generational households and the way things were already there. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what would or what could be done to improve the situation of poorer families so they can be so they can be better coping with the current cost of living crisis and 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 I kind of want to add on and go on to kind of the first question I asked where we talked about health and mm-hmm. we we highlighted and you highlighted rightly so the economic challenges but do, isn't I mean Bradford is is a, you know it's a, it's a strong Asian community but there are certain health conditions within Asian communities which are more prominent um isn't diet and um and, and diet awareness part and parcel of the problem as well I think yeah I think it is it's so difficult because there's so many different layers to this but absolutely yeah you know we we know that there are sort of more risk factors in certain um I mean, cardiovascular but, disease, uh, diabetes. Yes, diabetes, yeah, and obesity. Yep. Um, and obviously, yeah, that, that does relate to diet, but it also relates to your accessibility to food. Um, yep. And, yeah, we, we know, you know, we, we um, work quite closely with the NHS and with the local authorities to try and share our learnings as quickly as we have them so that they can implement the right interventions so it's not just, you know, it, it's about research, but it's also about working with the community, about what works for them, but also then working with the, the providers of services to make sure that they're delivering them in the right way that are meaningful to the local community as well. Hmm. Um, and I think, I mean, there is a big concern around the cost of living crisis. Obviously, it, it, for some families, it's definitely restricting their ability to, to buy um, healthy food for their family. Yeah. Um 
We also know that if, if you're not be able to heat a home, that increases the risk of mould and damp, which in turn can increase the risk of asthma in children, but also of um, respiratory problems in older adults as well. So there, there are some big concerns around, not just around the actual finances, but about the, the um, impact on housing, which will have more impacts on health. Um, but, you know, I think in Bradford, we have this real strength of working with communities to prioritise our research and then feeding that straight back into the services that are there to try and support families through these crises. And so I think there's a, a real strength in, in the learning of the community, the research and the, the interventions that means that what is delivered here will have more of a direct effect. So I know one of the interventions is about... Um, helping families to insulate their homes better so that they can afford to heat them in a more economical way and, and you know, prevent damp and, and other bad consequences coming along. Dr Josie Dickerson, thank you so much for taking time out and coming on to our show. I wish you a fantastic day ahead. May peace be with you. Thank you very much for having me. Welcome back. So this was the interview uh, conducted earlier um, with Dr uh, Josie Dickerson, you know, who spoke about the inequalities, uh, and especially with her, you know, with regards to her research, um, a lot to learn there. Definitely, I think that you know, it, there are so many different uh, issues facing families these days, and mm-hmm. you know, she um, really alluded <coughs> to a lot of the problems that you know we're going to discuss in in, in mm-hmm. the show as well. Mm-hmm. So it was great to have her on the show. Of course. Um, so move, move, moving forward, um, you know, we were speaking about. Um, the case against families, right? Mm. Uh, we were saying how you know during the pandemic, some families clearly basically struggled, and uh, you know the government stay safe in you know, order for we didn't really help the domestic abuse cases, right? Mm. And um, and for them, the home was basically a place of danger and not refuge. So the um, the ONS, which is the um, uh, the office of national yes, the office yeah. office of national statistics said that the Metropolitan, uh, you know, police received more calls for domestic-related issues during the lockdown, or often coming from neighbours, uh, than than before. And after the first lockdown in 2020, reports in England uh, actually revealed that deaths or serious injury of children linked to domestic abuse increased by a quarter. Um, you have, you know, Women's Aid 2021 uh, report basically showing that 53% of adult victims of abuse said that their children were witnessing more abuse during lockdown and over a third saying that the abuse were uh, was basically being directed towards their children um so you know you have all of these statistics in front front of you and 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 it basically kind of goes to show that there is a spiral effect just as we see uh, you know we spoke about we also often speak about peace or how it begins at home mm. and then it then transcends to you know a wider circle of society and then on forth and on a national level and then international level. The similar thing you see basically going backwards, if there's international tensions, it comes to national, national to local, local to to, to your home, basically. Yeah, cause and, 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 and you see that impact, right? And definitely, because, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the, I just wanted to allude to a point where you have um, international events causing, um, causing, like, um, impacts in the house is where um I, I don't have the exact statistic but um when england lose the football mm-hmm. uh domestic violence cases go up so it's these like 
impacts of these international uh, situations mm. that are impacting the home. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that uh, with with, with neighbours being more the ones that are calling in during the lockdown, the, the statistics you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. uh, I'm wondering is it because more people are home and mm-hmm. they, they're listening in and they can hear these things. Mm-hmm. But like you said, the, the international landscape kind of impacts on a very grassroots level. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the statistics really show that as well. Absolutely, and you know, from 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 the Islamic perspective, we you know we always mention that this 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 kind of behavior, it, it you know basically strains the family unit and and risks punishment in the next life as well. I mean, you have chapter thirty nine or sixteen says, surely the losers will be those who ruin their souls and ruin the f- their their families on the day of resurrection. Beware that is surely the manifest loss. Uh, the current uh, leader. Current worldwide leader of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Masur Ahmad, may Allah strengthen his hand, has repeatedly, uh, you know, directed Ahmadi husbands to be careful of their responsibilities as heads of as heads of households, and remember the rights of you know the people who depend on them, and and he has reminded them to face the problems and find the best uh, you know uh, sol- solution for it. Um, and you know he he basically says face the problems and find the best resolution for them rather than be part of the problem now men are not given open you know permission to systematically violent towards their wives and we you know we uh, we will be called to account if if found guilty of it so what we're saying is is, is that under no circumstances of, of of financial strain or or whatever it is that a man has to you know turn towards violence right mm. and and this this is not the answer to the problems. It's never the answer. It's never the answer. So we'll be going to our next guest. We have on the line Stacey Warren, who's the head of Insight and Influencing Directorate of Development and External Affairs Family Action. Assalamu alaikum. May peace and blessings of God be upon you and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Alaikum salam. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for taking your time out to join us today on our program. You worked on the Family Resilience Report uh, you know, which basically looked at the effects of COVID on UK families. Um, when you refer to, let's say, finances being uh, finances being a cornerstone of, of of basically family resilience, is this simply about having enough money coming in? Um, no, I think it's obviously a hugely important factor. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the choices that people have in how they can use that money they have, um, how regular and reliable sources of income are, so. Obviously, there's been lots of talk in the past about things like zero-hour contracts, mm-hmm. um, and then people's own financial skills for budgeting and investing. All of those come together um, to affect how finances affect resilience, um, how much you can save and be prepared for the unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also something called the poverty premium, um, which is where people on lower incomes often end up paying more for basic goods and services. So that's things like prepayment meters or... Um, paying higher costs for insurance and things like that that can trap people in that cycle. Mm. Right, and uh, Stacey, how did, you, how did going through the COVID crisis challenge families' uh, self-efficacy? Yeah, so self-efficacy is another, it's one of those um, words that's not the easiest to sort of explain briefly, mm. but um, it talks about how we uh, can control or deal with the situations we find ourselves in. Mm. Um, and the confidence and motivation we have, the belief we have in ourselves to affect how our goals and how we can move forward. 
Um, so obviously COVID took a lot of decisions out of people's hands, many for the first time, um, such as how you could leave your house and which shops you might use. Mm-hmm. And I think that affected people's kind of confidence and motivation. Um, we did sort of see that um, about a third of people felt less confident and motivated. Um, and of those, two-thirds said that overall health suffered because of that. Um, but then there were also people who realised that actually they had strengths they hadn't thought of before. They realised how adaptable they could be. Um, we saw people that um, felt that they were actually more confident as parents. And we also saw in another piece of research that we did with Essex University, that actually some people's relationships were strengthened and that then improved their own sort of confidence and motivation in their self to have goals for their family and move forward. Right. So um, could you could you kind of explain that that relationship between motivation and confidence when it when building self-efficacy? Because, you know, it, it, there's a there's a distinction there, right? Yeah. So um, I think that that confidence is needed as a first step Um so that you actually believe that you in yourself, you believe your own actions will make that difference mm. to the goals that you want to achieve. Uh, and without that confidence, we often found that people were then lacking the motivation to try and um, make those changes, which hopefully have that, that positive effect on life. The self-efficacy helps people actually make the change. But if you're not confident or motivated to do that, that really limits your ability to, to kind of make that change. Right. And... In- in in what way did you find families change their habits to actually improve their health? Because there's a, loads of stories about how people change their their health and and you know really, you know, building home gyms, finding ways to to make themselves better. So did you did you find that um, families change their habits to improve their health? We did find it's a quite a mixed picture actually. So hmm. this um, the research we did was four thousand adults with children under eighteen. So it's nationally representative, um, but a really mixed picture, pretty much split into thirds of people who were doing more exercising, uh, then a third who'd sort of exercised less or stopped, and a third said they didn't really change at all. Um, and kind of similar when we come to healthy eating um, and bringing into that the, the kind of use of alcohol. But then we did see that um, there were quite a number of people who took up some form of activity, whether that was outdoor exercise or even just talking with families and friends as a way to improve their mental health. Um, mm. So, yeah, a really, really mixed picture. Um, and we don't we haven't had this kind of data to dig into the background of perhaps why that was. Mm-hmm. But we do know that things like finances affected people in that for obvious reasons. Of course. I mean, family action, uh, you know, offers something called a family line. Could you maybe yeah. tell our listeners, you know, how this actually helps, you know, families, how it actually helped families during uh, the pandemic and beyond? Yeah, so Family Line is our free um, helpline service. It's open Monday to Friday um, and it has text crisis support outside those times. And it was set up um, nearly four years ago now, before you in January 23. So it existed before the pandemic, but I think it really came into its own in the pandemic because it was a digital service. Um, so obviously people couldn't necessarily access the other services they might normally be accessing. And the other side of it being that there are, I think, a, a large number of people during the pandemic and now um, mm. during cost of living crisis as it is, who haven't 
needed support before but suddenly did mm-hmm. and weren't necessarily tied into those other kind of traditional support networks or also sometimes we move from uh, a mm-hmm. survey that we've done on family pressures in 2019 that a lot of people in Britain think that other people need support more than they do it's a slight stiff upper lip I think for mm-hmm. um, feeling there mm-hmm. uh, but family line is that kind of listening ear for people um it's not a kind of hugely intensive um Mm -hmm. service that you're signing up for so i think that really helps people to just share um Mm -hmm. what they're feeling makes sense and lastly would you what would you say to you know some of our listeners that are going through these you know these difficult times what would your last message be i think it's to um really understand they're not alone in that um, and mm-hmm. do seek that support out there there's kind of a number of different things that, you know from grants to things like family line to just talk about it mm-hmm. um, and therefore kind of draw into those support networks it was interesting you were talking about that a bit earlier people support networks mm-hmm. in Bradford and things like that I think there's a lot of resilience in people's communities mm-hmm. um, but it's getting over that first hurdle sometimes to admit that we're struggling absolutely um, Thank you. Thank you so much, Stacey. It was a, it was a pleasure to have you on. Um, thank you, thank so, you so much for answering our questions. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. 0208687 It's an opportunity for those that are listening to, to come in and give their perspective as to, you know, yeah, some of the, the experience. The experience, of course, uh, or some of the, 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 the practical steps that they're taking, which has helped them. But, what, but one, of the th- you know, the, one of the most interesting th- things that I've picked up from this, from this interview is, 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 is actually the very last point. Um, which also Josie mentioned, and as well as uh, Stacey, that when communities come together, mm. when we, you know, as as you know, that point of that these these issues that are external do have an impact on your family life. But if you flip that and you see and and you say because we're a family, we can overcome these issues. Yeah. So you see, it's it's just the perspective change, and and this is I think this is exactly the case with with. Um, with uh, within the community as well, that when a community, you know, you have communities coming together and helping each other, then there is that resilience, right, and Definitely. build up, and of, of course, a lot of good does take place. Yeah, and I think that, like, I thought the um, the name Family Action was, was was quite relevant in the sense that mm-hmm. I think a lot of people uh, mistake the fact that you need motivation to take action. Mm. It's actually action creates motivation Hmm. so with anything if you like there's the i think is it the five minute rule or the two minute rule where Mm -hmm. just anything that you you need to do that you don't have any motivation to do just sit down and try and do it for two minutes and when you find that in most in most cases what you will find that as soon as you sat down without distraction and started to do that thing you will start to create that motivation and you'll do it. it's like with mm. anything any sport right we're going to discuss it later but um any sport if you start it mm. you like as you, and you stick to it you'll start to see that it becomes easier and it's more like you're more, more motivated to mm. do it so um but yeah definitely i think that the community aspect is 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 one we've experienced right um mm-hmm. there's yes, a, yes uh, no doubt it was a great way to to help us absolutely so i mean moving forward uh, you know speaking about actually reassessing the you know the uh, the the impact of this you know, this crisis on these fa- on on families is it that simple i mean you know ev- ev- even the uh, the office of national statistics basically admit admitted that the rise in reporting of domestic abuse cases during lockdown 
is part of a trend which, which which had begun in 2018 before the pandemic and you know others have pointed also that that it was the it was money problems that put families under pressure during covid and you know a study of 572 families with preschool children in sh- chicago uh, led by ariel khalil founded that uh, he found that it was loss of income that led to parents depressive symptoms stress diminished sense of hope and negative interactions with children but i think I, i do have another take on 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 this particularly hmm. um we in the west or you know those people that have never seen adversity in their life ever yeah <coughs> of course um this would become an issue for them right but those that have seen adversity in their life and ha- have overcome that adversity yeah they have learned that whenever adversity will come they will be able to so i think as as we were we were discussing earlier that it it directly links with our perception or how we understand things um in the holy quran you know a, a very very famous verse uh, is la yukallifullahu nafsan illa wusaha we often mm-hmm. mention this allah the almighty does not burden a soul beyond this yeah. beyond this beyond this capacity you know the whole idea of mental health problems and these things increasing of course they will but i think it's just uh, the, the matter of perspective someone who who does have mental health problems and 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 to an extent where he needs medical help should take medical help mm-hmm. are you getting my point yeah. but my point is that that we need to do whatever we can because we have the ability within us allah the almighty has given us yeah. that defense mechanism does kick in is is to is to come out, out of that mindset as 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 much as we can for instance if you're going through those those hardships of course we have an element of prayer you know we we always have that that helps no doubt yeah. that community element that we spoke what communities mm-hmm. coming together and especially uh, you know especially within the uh, the the one of the positive things within the asian community is the fact that the family support you know mm-hmm. um th- there are many negatives too <laughs> but, <laughs> but one one positive this which is huge is is family support if if the son's not doing well the father will help or the mother will help or the brother will help right so these things are are there but i think uh, what i was saying earlier although the, there are research out there that says that that money or financial difficulty is 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 a huge factor in do, mm. you know domestic issues you know uh, divorce etc i think i think there is another i think one other, other i think there's another factor which is the inability to to actually understand what they're actually going through and that they can come uh, they can come out of it so i think i in from my personal perspective is more to do with the inability to understand that situation mm. because they've never been in that situation yeah what what is your what is your view yeah so i i agree i think that um you know experience will always help right if you, mm-hmm. if you've lived uh, a life of of uh, you know ignorance so to speak of of any sort of um, issues in your life then then you're quite lucky and you'll probably find it harder to to go through these things but i mm. think that's where islam comes into it right that um islam teaches you that with god's help you can achieve anything essentially right mm. so um i think that understanding that and believing that hey we can get through this and i think family is a big part of that and you mentioned that sometimes it can be a bad thing of course like families can 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 bring issues as well but just having that support knowing that you're going to go home to someone that mm. you're going to that it's not just me who's dealing with this problem i've got others with me who will unconditionally in most cases help you yeah um i think that that's a really big factor very interesting true i mean um yes <laughs> well, i i could i couldn't uh, you know agree more um 
I mean, speaking about then, you know, the, the, I think the housing crisis and, and, and the family support, we know that most crises are basically short and sharp. And if we, we, if we take crisis to mean something that is an upset in, in a steady state, causing a disruption in a, in, a, in, in a family's basically usual pattern of functioning, then the housing crisis in the UK can also be you know, seen as a chronic crisis. You know, it, it, it has been going on for decades, but has stopped many adult children uh, from moving on and buying their own houses, uh, buying their own homes. Most, many reasons for it, but you know, it means that today you have to pay about 9.1 times uh, you know, their annual salary to actually buy a home. Uh, wow, and 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 and, and most young, you know, uh, people cannot even afford the ten percent de- deposit that's actually need needed. Um, so, and then you have, you know, you know, you know, typically parents do step in to help and stuff. This is where you know, tick, uh, tick, tickle down e- uh, e- economics really, you know, really actually works. Yeah, you know, the King's Court Trust estimates about five point five trillion will be passed down in the UK from now till. Uh, 2050, uh, 1 trillion in 2020 uh, alone. But there's one thing I think, and, and it, it, it directly links back to what we were discussing earlier about our inability to uh, to basically comprehend the situation that we're going through. At, and one thing is, I think a practical solution is to actually realize what you're going through and that the life is not going to be same and that you, you would have to, you, do, you would have to make priorities, you know, of, of, of things you can, you can do and things that you can't do. Um, so I think this is something that's also very important, but <clears throat> we're going to continue with our discussion further. But we do have on the line our, uh, uh, our guests. Our guests, of course. We have two uh, on the line. We have uh, Sarah, uh, Sarah Martin Denham, who is Associate Professor of Care and Education and Senior Fellow High, Higher Education Academy uh, at the University of Sunderland. We also have Al Coates, Al Coates um, who's a social worker, trainee and uh, podcaster. With a short introduction, Assalamu alaikum, may peace and blessings of God be upon you and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Hello, thank Hello. you. Thank you so much for joining us. So I think this is, a, this is my first experience of having uh, two guests uh, on at the same right. time. Um, let's see how it goes. I think, <laughs> I think, it'll, be, I think it'll be interesting. Um, now... Um, the question that we're we're, we're asking, uh, firstly Al, right? to Al, I think uh, what we want to yeah. ask you is, uh, according to government, uh, you know, statistics, uh, one in ten children uh, need a social worker, uh, needed a social worker between 2013 and 2019. I mean, what reasons lie behind why social services get involved with a child? Um, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, um, and but most often it's when families maybe aren't able to sort mm-hmm. of meet the children's needs. Families may be struggling. And there's a whole raft of technical explanations, but a lot of children who, any child who has was born with a disability, they may have a social worker just for additional support or support in relation to education. But there's a whole raft of children who um, we would probably describe as being ch- child in need. Um, and that number is approximately about 400,000. In 2019, for example, it's 400,000 children and their children who and um, their parents or their families they're struggling to support them and um, that they're living in an environment where they're un- sort of unlikely to a- achieve or maintain a reasonable level of health or development and mm-hmm. um, there are a whole you know there's a whole raft of children there's 80,000 children at the moment who are in foster care every one of those children mm-hmm. has a social worker uh, children who've been adopted they have access to a social worker so there's a 
there's a whole broad range of reasons why children might have a social worker. Some of them are you know, unfortunate in relation to difficult circumstances. Sometimes it's just families looking for additional support. Mm. Or sometimes it's where families or the community is worried about the welfare of those children. Right, Al, and sticking with you, um, when a child is in need of being taken out of their family home, grandparents yeah. often become their guardians, right? And what yeah. impact does this have on family relationships between the guardian parent and their adult child and the struggling parent and their child? Yeah, I mean, I think it can be... It all depends really on the circumstances of why a, a parent can't care for their child. Mm. Um, often that may be difficult circumstances. A parent's maybe... Maybe there's mental ill health, maybe mm. there's issues around poverty, maybe there's issues around neglect or drugs and alcohol misuse, issues around dependency. Mm-hmm. And they can often mean that those children have experienced high levels of adversity and the social workers are concerned that their needs are not being met. Mm-hmm. In those circumstances, that can be really stressful on a family. Grandparents obviously distressed for their own children, but also their grandchildren and prioritizing the needs of, the, of their grandchildren. Mm-hmm. So in those cases, often that can cause a, a, fracture, a fracture. The parent, grandparents are, are torn between the needs of their children and their grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can be difficult relationships where if, where if they're trying to get their children to behave a certain way or mm-hmm. to do better, mm-hmm. or they're worried about them. So some, oftentimes there's really, it creates really complicated dynamics within families where you know, grandparents, sometimes elderly, thinking, I didn't sign up to look after my grandchildren, but I don't see that there's another choice. And mm-hmm. stepping in to what is a, a, a difficult circumstance um, to support their children. So it can be really difficult. I mean, sometimes, you know, the, those, and that can go on for years. You know, mm-hmm. maybe you take a three year old, your grandchild, mm-hmm. and you've got them till they're 18. You know, you've got them, well, you've got them for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. But in the midst of that, you've got your own children with needs that maybe, you know, they may be experiencing mental ill health. So, it puts an enormous strain on grandparents. And at the moment, it, it, it's a really uncertain number of families that are living like this. At the, currently, we think there's about 200,000 children in the UK who are living with grandparents. And sometimes it can be older siblings, mm-hmm. aunties, uncles. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not, I mean, grandparents bear the brunt, but it can be other family members, aunts, uncles, True. you know, siblings. Very interesting. But we do want to come to Sarah now. Um, we yep. wanted to ask you, Sarah, what, why was you know family group uh, conferencing uh, actually set up, and 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 how does it actually work? Ah, uh, hello there. Yeah, so family group conferencing originated in New Zealand, mm-hmm. and it was designed as an intervention, as a family-led approach to preventing children entering the care system. Really, what um, Al's talked about before about families struggling and having difficulties. Mm-hmm. So with the family group conferencing approach, it has an independent facilitator, independent facilitator, so not attached to um, to children's services, but we'll go out and speak to the families, build a, build a different type of relationship mm-hmm. and talk to them about what this approach will involve. So that facilitator kind of will speak to everybody in the family's network. So it could be they would speak to the parents, the grandparents, mm-hmm. um, if they've got people in the community who are involved with the family. And what they, their purpose is really is to bring everybody together mm-hmm. to attend a meeting and to try and come up with um, a plan that mm-hmm. makes sure that the children's needs are met and that they're safe. So that plan's developed and it's in a way that the family lead that. So they are very involved. 
in the decisions with the mm. understanding that they know their family the best and what the needs are. And as part of family group conferencing, everyone's encouraged to talk really honestly and openly about what the issues and challenges are, but also what the strengths are that they can bring to that family. So how they can work together to support the family in the best way they can in the hope that it'll prevent escalation and needing further um, intense support from children's services. Great, Sarah. And you, you, you started to mention it, but in what ways can a family group plan empower families? So in my study, I spoke to 25 people who'd been involved across 15 families in a family group conference. And it was actually during COVID-19. So it was really interesting and the family group conference didn't take place in a physical building with everyone around the table. They had to kind of adapt for some of the meetings and, and, and do them in other ways. So what came out really clearly in the findings was that the family group conference gave them ownership and it helped them feel empowered to find solutions. So they could often, not in all cases, in most cases, they would come together and they'd talk about the difficulties. So it could be things like a social worker had commented that the house wasn't to an acceptable standard of living. So mm-hmm. they would decide together look, what can we do together? I'm good at decorating. I'll come and help you decorate. I'm good at organising. So I, the grandparent might have gone and helped mm. organise. So they would work together. And that giving that kind of responsibility back to the support network, for the families that I spoke to on the whole, it really, really benefited them. And um, There was only some families, a, a, couple, a handful, where they felt it didn't go well. And mm. they felt that that was where... Yep. There wasn't somebody in the in the family group conference who was taking charge and saying, look, these are the problems and this is what we we need to do. Mm-hmm. Or where there was tension in a family, so where relationships had, had become so damaged because the intervention hadn't happened at the start point of difficulties arising. So there was irreparable damage done between um parents or parents and grandparents for example or where there was a child in the conference and the child didn't have a positive relationship with one of the family members Mm -hmm. but on the whole it had a really positive impact particularly where there was whatsapp groups for example set up so the families Mm. could do check-ins on how how the parents are doing and how the children were doing that's very good so lots of practical advice yeah worked really well very interesting indeed. I mean, lastly, we do wanted to ask both of you, how can we actually ensure that we give you know children a voice when when actually trying to you know assess the right kind of support for a family in crisis? Oh, sorry, yes, sorry, I, I couldn't quite hear that. Yeah, so I think the important thing that came out in the various studies I've done mm-hmm. is making sure that you, you find the right way to give the children a voice. So not all children are going to want to articulate verbally. Mm. So building a really positive relationship and getting their voice in a way that they feel able to, whether that is through drawings, whether it's through photography, having a conversation with a trusted adult mm-hmm. or other creative ways. So I think it really depends on um, finding out the way that that child wants to engage and share their views and feelings about what happens next. Thank you so much. And what do you think I'll, on, on, on this um, question of giving children you know, ways to, to you know, try to ass- assess their right, you know, to, to try to assess the right kind of support? Yeah, I mean, Sarah's answer was spot on. And um, I w- the only thing I would maybe add to that is that children are really smart. Mm. Um, but we've got to be conscious that children are very loyal as well. And mm. so oftentimes sat in a room full of adults that they feel loyal to parents, 
mm-hmm. grandparents, aunts, uncles, finding out what they want can be really it's sensitive work and you've got to create space and, and listen to children in relation to being loyal to a parent but also being able to articulate what mm. they want and what they're worried about. So it's down to really good practitioners, be that a, an independent voice or creative means and sort of taking time really rather than just rushing in and you know, listening to when children are just saying what they feel they should say and not wanting to upset people. So it is hard work, but mm. it's worthwhile work. It's essential work. Absolutely. Thank you so much to both of you. And I think it was a wonderful discussion, um, especially having both of you on at the same time. We had, you know, it, it went really smoothly. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. So much to learn. Um, you know, um, although me and uh, uh, Fahim were discussing that, you know, how the hour is going to go, but you know, we only have about two minutes to go. Mm. Um, you know, so much to learn. I think one of the things that I have picked picked up is the importance of family unit. Yeah. Um, I mean, we in our in our Asian settings don't really appreciate the yeah, the amount of granted, don't we? yes the amount of support that we have um, without actually asking for it. Right, mm. um, and and of course, you know, you have one aspect of that where, you know, one aspect which which both Al and Sarah Sarah referred to, of 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 giving you know children the voice and actually trying to understand what they want as well, yeah. because in that environment we have seen that they don't really have that decision making element. Mm. If 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 you get what I mean, to a certain they can be influenced, certain, right? Yeah, they, they can be really influenced. Yeah. So I think that aspect, if learned, then it's it's a very very beautiful sort of in in environment where you have protection, where you have you know these elders to learn from from their from their experiences mm. and uh, and also to you know to 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 be able to do something new and i think from the parents perspective they should be open to that they should be open yeah. to new ideas and uh, you know new ways of approaching things yeah cuz crisis essentially can have all sorts of impact yeah. and there should always be ways for us to try and make sure that we tackle those with resilience and you know religion can pay uh, play a very good part in that and you know we go to um, Mm -hmm. the Holy Quran chapter 2 verse 156 we will try you with something of fear and hunger and loss of wealth and lives and fruits but Mm. give glad tidings to the patient you know beliefs also nurture a shared value system so you know I think that religion can really play a really good role in this right absolutely I mean it's a wonderful point that you you know you mentioned um, you know, it brings to mind uh, the, the hadith where you know a poor woman with with her two little daughters, and we don't have much time. She came towards Aisha, may Allah be pleased with her, and she had basically had n- not nothing, and she basically div- divided the date into two pieces and gave one to each of the children. In the meantime, the Holy Prophet peace be upon him also came in, and when the story was narrated to him, he said, "A person who cherishes love for his children and does his duty to them shall be saved from the fire of hell." And and this were many values, you know, shown here during a period of hunger, self-sacrifice, sharing duty and love, you know, actually go a long way. Mm. Um, I mean, so much that we have learned and uh, the, the message at the end we would like to give, of course, these are hard times, so stick together, uh, find help, ask for help and, and actually be there for one another. This is all from us and we're going to the news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording. And lines are now closed.
You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. And welcome back to the second hour of our program, where in the second hour we are discussing sports, a level playing field. Um, sports pertains to you know any form of competitive physical activity or game and that aims uh, you know that aims to use maintain or improve one's uh, physical ability and skills while providing enjoyment to participants and in of course some cases entertainment to spectators in some cases <laughs> <laughs> and in 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 commerce you know a level playing field is is, is basically a concept of of fairness and and this is the idea that is used a lot in you know sports ethics, uh, you know appropriately enough since it is a you know sporting met- metaphor, and a level you know playing field is basically a situation in which competitors are required to follow same rules, and are given an equal ability to compete. Uh, now this means that no matter what the rules are, as long as they are applied equally and impartially, the playing field is still level in sports. Equality is uh, in sports. Equality is also of of, of vital importance. Um, everyone should get the same resources, same support, same information, same equipment, same choices, same coaching, same rules, and same facilities. Recently, uh, you know, sports and the and policy decisions uh, have shown to be just as good as pulling people apart. Now, sport offers a national identity, you know, uniting countries nationally and internationally. Mm. It can be used, uh, you know, to shape values um, and morals within society. So sports, uh, you know, can also break down social barriers, as we know, uh, stereotypes and prejudices. Um, Whether it is football, tennis, um, kickboxing or sprinting, there is, you know, something particularly, uh, you know, exhilarating about watching top athletes compete. So the global sports market, um, you know, basically, if you think about it, reached a value of nearly three hundred and eighty-eight point three billion in twenty twenty. Wow! How huge is that? Um, yeah, it's 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 massive. And um, when it comes to sport, I actually um, talking about this uh, on my way here. I heard that India have um, decided to pay uh, female cricketers the same amount as male cricketers. Oh wow! So there's that that side of things but I think here we, what we're trying to uh, understand and, and, and realise about uh, sport is, is is it a play a level playing field mm-hmm. and um, I think that sports I know you said that uh, sometimes I don't are you saying that no one wants to come and watch you play weekly football real is that what it is no what uh, I mean is uh, but when, when your team loses it's not really yeah. pleasant is it so um, no definitely and um, you know with the World Cup coming up as well I you can see the change in the just everyone's on on a buzz and mm-hmm. everyone's like thinking hey you know everyone bands together so i really appreciate the point where that sports offers it like a national identity and you know you see the england flags and whatnot uh, everywhere and i think that um another case where i've seen this as well is actually with islam is uh mohammed salah like um people i i think the liverpool uh, are you a liverpool fans, fan i'm not okay um but i've i've heard that the uh, liverpool fan, fans um have a 
um, chant that uh, if he keeps scoring more goals, they'll become Muslim, or just just like mm. something like that, where it just kind of breaks down that barrier. So mm. I thought that was really interesting that mm-hmm. you know people who may not necessarily have heard of a religion or had any association with it would have learned about it through the fact that they through sport mm-hmm. and um, just a particular player demonstrating their belief. Very interesting. Um, so you know, talking about uh, sports. Uh, of course, from from the Islamic perspective, we we are reminded that all human beings are, <clears throat> you know, created by the same process and hence are equal, right? Um, but um, and and also Allah the Almighty says in the Holy Quran that all mankind we have created you from male and female and we have, you know, put you into different tribes and sub tribes that you may know one another. Uh, verily, the most honourable among you in the sight of Allah is He who is most righteous among you. Surely Allah is all knowing and all aware. Um, this is, you know, uh, the Islamic, you know, principles with regards to uh, equality and and justice and the fundamental principle, as I was mentioning, to root out any sort of racism, uh, was firmly reiterated by the Holy Prophet peace be upon him at, at his last pilgrimage, which we which we often mention, where you know he he a short time before his demise he said, "Oh ye men, your God is one, your ancestor is one, an Arab possesses no superiority over a non-Arab." Nor does and nor does a non-Arab over an Arab, a white is no way superior to a red, nor, for the matter, a red to a white, but only to the extent to which he discharges his duty to God and men. The most honoured among you in the sight of God is the one who is most righteous. Uh, again, you know, reiterating that point, that verse of the Holy Quran, this statement, you know, clearly indicates that the real measure of greatness is the good we spread and the good we bring to other human beings and these are you know uh, you know speaking of you know fundamental values of fair play if you know if you could tell yeah. us a bit more about that because there, there are fundamental values of fair play and in, in, you know there's fair competition there's respect there's equality gamemanship mm-hmm. like for example I'll, I'll go through them so fair competition to do, enjoy the fruits of success it is not enough to win triumph must be measured by absolute fair means honesty and just play you know, respect, uh, fair play requires unconditional respect for opponents, mm-hmm. fellow players, referees and fans. <coughs> you know, you often see referees being berated and it's, it's good that they can give like cards for that using the football example. Uh, equality, competing on equal terms is an essential uh, in sport. Otherwise, you know, you can't really... Um, you can't really measure it properly, right? You can't say that this this team or this person is better than the other. And uh, gamesmanship, without breaking them, players may bend the rules and use questionable methods to gain an advantage. Gamesmanship exists at all levels and in many sports due to media due to the media coverage. Many examples are seen in elite sport. For example, th- like this tactic actually backfired on the Brazilian player Rivaldo in the 2002 World Cup match uh, I don't know if you remember seeing it he he just faked his injury where he was uh, he clutched his head after another player had kicked uh, the ball at his legs so <laughs> unless he's mm-hmm. unless he's connected unless his head's connected to his legs in some <laughs> way I don't think that that's what the case was mm-hmm. so you know, using these tactics will always backfire, in my opinion. I think mm. that you know, cheating never helps, and ensuring a level playing field is is important. Mm-hmm. And you know, sport without doping—that's another reason, um, another fundamental value, right? Uh, fair play means not cheating, but taking any sort of d- drugs or mm. doping. 
there's been so many cases where where um, athletes have been called out for that. Yep. And then with the <coughs> integrity, you know, practicing sport with a sound and ethical uh, framework is vitally important if you aim to be a true champion. Because then, you know, if if you don't have that integrity, um, you will feel it as a champion. You won't really mm-hmm. have achieved it. I think uh, there's many films uh, that discuss that issue too. Um, and solidarity uh, is important to support each other and share feelings, mm-hmm. aims and dreams. You know, mutual support brings mutual success on and off the field. You need to ensure that there's solidarity. And mm-hmm. lastly, tolerance. Mm-hmm. You know, the willingness to accept behavior or decisions you may not agree with develops your self-control. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that could be the deciding factor when it comes to winning or losing. Absolutely. And I think one of the thing, um, one point that I did, I did want to mention is, is when we look at people that when we say he was great or he was the greatest, let's say, you know, talking about Muhammad Ali, who's, you know, famous boxer, um, often described as, you know, one of the greatest boxers. It was just not his ability to box, right? It, there was mm. a lot of other things. His 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 whole demeanor, how, you know, uh, how he spoke, um, his political and cultural impact. Right, um, he, uh, and 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 his his values, his values, his stance. So I think one of the this this is something that's also, um, you know, very important is is to is is what you actually stand for, right? Um, now you know, speaking about discrimination in sport on 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 basis of gender, we we know that <coughs> female athletes, you know, players still face harassment and discrimination in sports. Um, you know, you had various cases. I think it was, um, I think in the U.S. recently. Especially in the, um, um, uh, it's not quite com- coming to my mind now. Um, there's co- court cases on that as well, where mm-hmm. there was a lot of harassment and dis- discrimination. Maybe yeah. we can come to that la- la- later on. I, I think it was in gym- gym- gymnastics. I think I don't know if if if, if you've come across this. Yeah. Um, but around forty percent of sports participants are are women, and and yet they receive about four percent of sports media co- coverage. Um, these numbers say a lot about gender di- discrimination as it, and its presence in sports too. But there, I think there's another element, and I think on the other side there's an argument of um, because sports generates money from the viewership mm. and the sponsorship. So and, and of course the whole uh, the whole argument of equal pay and everything like that. This is something that's been going on. Um, but one one of the counter argument for to to that is the fact that the money that they generate base is based on viewership, and the viewership of men's uh, men's sport is a lot higher than women. So that's why they say that, look, it's not to do with gender, but rather it's to do with viewership and the yeah. sponsors that, that they receive. Um, now, but on the other hand, you know, t- the 2019 FIFA World, World Cup generated... The women's one. Yeah, re- record viewership, 993 million people watched on TV, 482 million on digital platforms, and the final was more popular than 2018 men's final with a 22% larger audience. Um, I need to check that stat actually. <laughs> no, I'm joking. It's, 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 it's probably going to be right. Um, now, because the games are scheduled, uh, you know, for less desirable times, right, and and are barely discussed in in, in the media, women's you know professional sports uh, sports teams earn much less than their male counterparts as their wages are you know revenue based. Hmm. So um, there is so there is not I mean there's not a level playing field you've the, the, the conclusion that we're coming to hmm. and there's never a le- level playing field in a, there's never been a level playing field in a life hmm. right let's be very 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 on, honest about it um, you have to uh, you have to in a way fight for it you know in 
in the prescribed or the you know things that you're allowed to do within especially from speaking from the islamic perspective that you have to struggle and to have to achieve you know for you to achieve these things um talking about islamic you know uh, point of view his holiness hazrat mirza masrur ahmed has has said during his address to young women enrolled in waqf nur scheme he said uh, further another characteristics of this a- of this era is that women have sought their rights from men and as a result some men have also formed groups in order to promote the rights of women however ahmadi women should ask themselves that who are men to bestow rights upon them where when their creator allah the almighty has himself bestowed upon them all that all that they need and desire they should understand that allah has granted them true equality based on logic and wisdom indeed the way in which women have been described in the holy quran and the way and the way in which it has established their rights is completely unique and not found in any other religious scriptures we're going to discuss more on this um, further but we do have on the line our first guest uh we do have uh Stephen Hilburn who is the Stephanie st- uh, st- sorry my bad uh who we have St- Stephanie Hilburn who is the CEO at Women in Sports uh assalamu alaikum may peace and blessings of god be upon you and welcome to the drive time show thank you for having me great to be here thank you so much for joining us um would you please uh, explain uh, briefly to our listeners about your organization uh women in sports and how you actually help and encourage women and girls to engage in different types of uh physical and sports activities yes of course i mean we're a charity that's been around for um, nearly 40 years and the the basic premise is that we believe that girls and women benefit a great deal from sport not just um physically um keeping healthy physically but but all the mental benefits it brings um and you know the value of learning about leadership and all the all the other aspects sport can bring and and really women have generally played a lot less sport than men um girls than boys and so um we've been promoting uh the the need for that to change really for for a long time and we and we talk to a lot of sports uh, bodies and also to leisure facilities and try and encourage them to make more opportunities for girls and women and also understand some of the issues that might be do a lot of research to understand some of the issues that might be holding women and girls back from taking part right and why in your opinion uh, there is a gender discrimination in sports and how are females discriminated in this field well it's quite interesting if you go freedom from responsibility and we often um take on more of the burdens of unpaid work at home so there's some time things but there's certainly in the past there was very deliberate exclusion of women from a lot of sports including the olympics etc now things are a bit more uh, more inclusive but there are stereotypes that mean that when for girls even start school they're much less likely to know how to kick a ball or throw a ball and from that moment their self belief can be lower so there are the soft soft aspects and then if you look at the the practical opportunities that women and girls have there's there's not always good single sex provision of sport and leisure there's not always uh, opportunities to take part a lot of the classes for over 50s are really for over 80s and So there are there are a number of different aspects to that and then there's also the support that girls need um in their teens you know just to manage physically what they're going through as their body changes and then additionally for a lot of your listeners there's issues around um inflexibility that's been shown to what you wear you know being more covered up to to play sport 
um, and you know lack of understanding about you know issues such as fasting and Ramadan and things like that. So there's layered on on over all of these things. There's um, it's just big, big barriers that particularly girls and women face um, when it comes to sport. Right. And a study found that in, in 2019, 95% of TV coverage was actually focused on men's sports, despite of the fact that 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup generated record viewership. What what could be the reasons which contributes towards this difference in media coverage? Well, I think, again, it's a, it's a very slow-changing thing. So... It's about the people involved in making the decisions see that there is a audience for men's sport, and they're reluctant to to test by putting on women's sport and see if there's an audience for women's sport. And we've seen with some big moments like the Lionesses this summer that there is a big audience for women's sport. But breaking away from this model of sort of almost dominantly male coverage, a coverage of male sport, I should say, um, is you know, it's a big thing for them to do. There's a lot of money involved. Um, there's a bit of change. There's quite substantial change, but it still, as you say, starts from, from a very bad starting point. So I, I think, you know, that's that's what's happening. Our, what we found is as soon as the um, coverage increases, like it did for football over the summer, girls, what we hear on our radio, um, and it, it does make girls feel it's normal to play sport. And, and to be able to dream of reaching the top, which is something that girls and women have not really been able to do for any team sports until very recently. Right, and why are the female players or athletes paid less as compared to their male counterparts? And what what do we think we could do to um, eradicate this disparity? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's, it, I hadn't really realised until I became a involved in sport, just how much money is circulating in the system. And so it's a real change that's needed to the business model to get to a position where those women who do reach the top and are playing professionally can be paid at a level that means they don't need another job or they can afford to pay to travel. Um, And so we're in a very big, there's a very big difference currently. So the women who play for Chelsea Football Club, for instance, um, and just that's just to pick one example, and it's got a brilliant manager, the Chelsea Women's Club. You know, they they won't be getting the same wages as the men, and nor will they be at, at Liverpool, Arsenal, anywhere else. So there's this big disparity, and it's because of the the model we're sort of trapped in. They're saying, well, we're not making as much money from the women's matches, so we all have to try and attend the women's matches to to make up for that. So we can't afford to pay our players as much, or we're not making as much money from our broadcast deals. Hence, we need to change what's going out on the TV and radio. So we can't afford to, p- to pay the women as much. So we don't necessarily think that anyone needs to be paid as much as some of the male football players but um, at all. But I think to just be paid a, a, a wage you can live off would be what you know uh, we were looking for. So so that does need to change. Um, and it's because of the system, because it's, 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 it's um, stuck there. But the prize money... Um, is is another issue. So tennis was the first to play to pay equal prize money to uh, people at some of the big Grand Slams, and we'd be looking, you know, for a start the FA Cup. Why why can't we just pay the women the same prize money as the men? So I think we just need some leadership, frankly. And and I think if there were more women running sport, uh, that would have changed a bit quicker. But generally, it's been a sector where there's been many fewer. Uh, women at the top so we'd want to see 
really big changes mm. to the budget. So there's investment all the way through the system. And we want to see um, many more women running sports. And there are some really interesting sports where there have been really real breakthroughs, like, um, strangely, things like fencing and boxing and things like that. But we need much quicker change, much faster change, I think, if women and girls are going to get those opportunities to really enjoy um, sport and, and mm. basically draw all its benefits. Right. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Um, that was really insightful. Um, thank you for joining us on the show. Uh, thank you for involving me. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. That was Stephanie Hilburn, uh, the CEO at Women in Sports. Um, I think we're going to discuss uh, discrimination in sports when it comes to to race. And um, I think athletes of colour experience harassment and discrimination from teammates, opponents, team staff and spectators. Uh, hearing racial slurs called out at them, whether in the locker room or from the stands, is unfortunately uncommon. Um, I think that everyone's seen uh, a lot of the racism in football, despite all of the stuff that's been done to try and eradicate it. Um, according to uh, in 2018, actually, 52 instances of racial discrimination in sports were recorded only in the US, while internationally, 137 racist acts were noted. Um, you know, according to the Home Office statistics, football-related hate crimes rose 47% in England and Wales during the tw- 2018 and 19 season. Following England's defeat in Italy in the Euro 2020 final, a torrent of racist abuse was directed online towards Marcus Rashford, hmm. J- Jaden Sancho, and Osaka after they missed penalties. It's 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 sad to see. Right, that, that's in 2022, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I think Balotelli, um, he was also subjected to quite a lot of racial abuse when it comes to this. Ozil from from Germany, yeah. I think he he was also a very famous example of how when the fans when when he was scoring goals for the right team, the fans were all yes, oh, yeah. oh you're yeah. a German, you're yeah. this, you're that, you're. You're the perfect guy. But then when something was not going according to their way, then again, you see the ugly side of, of um, how these fans react. And I think we we saw that. I mean, look, you remember that day, yeah, don't you? Yeah, 100%. It was horrible, wasn't <laughs> yeah. it? But I think when you have, you follow them all the way, 95% all the way mm. to the final, and then you're you're 100% behind them, you're hyping them up, you're saying, yeah, these are the English Lions and this and that. And then, of course, when they miss a penalty, which I dare anyone in that crowd of how many thousands there were, I don't think even 10% of those could have scored that under that immense pressure. Definitely. It's not just a 50, 60K or, I don't know, 80, 90,000. What's the... Capacity of, I, I think, think it was 90,000 yeah, something like that. It's, over 90, it's yeah. almost 100,000 people watching you in the stadium. Yeah. And then forget about the millions around around the world. 
Yeah, because it comes down to loyalty as well. Yeah. Right? Like you support someone for so long and then I, you just I would, turn on them. Uh, you know, I would call that hypocrisy. Yeah, 100%. That's, that's Munafka right yeah, there. Yeah, definitely. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, you support them throughout this whole thing. You yeah. just turn on them because yeah. they like, di- it's not like they missed it on purpose. It's yeah. not like they didn't want to score it or they just decided <laughs> to just walk off the pitch or something, yeah. you know. Like they they tried and, you know, sometimes it goes, one team always has to win. Yeah. Right. And so it, it's it's really shocking to see, um, and and I think that well, you can it, say one team always has to has to lose. Yes, there's yeah, always yeah. going to be one. There'll one always be a loser. Yeah, yeah. Well, human diversity has value. The fact that cultural, linguistic, and national groups exist is a sign from God Almighty Himself. These should be acknowledged for their beauty and inherent value, not for any sense of superiority or inferiority. The Holy Quran very clearly states that among his signs is the creation of the heavens and the earth and the, and the diversity of your tongues and colors. And that surely are signs for those who possess knowledge. And in different parts of the Holy Quran, God Almighty states that this, how boring of a place would this world be if you only had people of one color, if you yeah. only had people of one race? Yeah. I think it would be such a boring place. Yeah, I think people don't appreciate how how much diversity actually yeah. makes the world interesting. That, that that's know. what it is. Yeah, think about the food that you imagine. <laughs> that imagine <laughs> beans and <laughs> so. I, no, I think I, yeah, I, I like beans, man. <laughs> Nothing about beans. Yeah, beans are toasted a good meal, but like um, honestly, I think that um, diversity should be celebrated. Yeah. It honestly makes you feel. Uh, and learn so many th- different things about others. It makes things life, like you said, life more interesting. Yeah. And uh, to 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 be discriminative of someone. I was reading. Uh, I was I was listening earlier. They were saying about how um, certain children have been uh, given, uh, they been discriminated about their hair. Hmm. And there's things that certain cultural cultures and um, individuals can't actually change about their hair, yeah. but they have to conform to this certain thing. And when it comes to sport, you know, racism, it, like, why go to why go to someone's color, right? Like, why why make that like you know? Fair you, enough, you're angry at that person or whatever it is, but why why do you have to bring that race into it? You know what, my look, I'm not a I'm not a big football fan, mm. <clears throat> but I remember watching the World Cup, and depending on which country you're in. For example, if you are here in the UK, mm. you're watching the English team play. Yep. The way the fans will react, of course, they will be very, very selfish. They will be very English about mm. their comments. When I was watching um, the the last World Cup, I believe it was in Germany that I no, even before that. To, uh, Rio? To, to, so two, yeah. two, yeah, I think it was two two World Cups ago, mm. eight years ago. Um, roughly that time and I was in Germany and <laughs> it wasn't nice <laughs> let's just say it. it wasn't I felt very uncomfortable yeah. with the comments that were made about the opposing team with yeah. the comments that were made about the referee mm. with pretty much everything so I felt really really uncomfortable although it was borderline racism very very borderline mm. but um, I, I I thought about this many, many times and I thought to myself, you know what? I think as long as you're not a hardcore fan of a sport, you will probably not understand the psyche of those people who are supporting their team that in that way. Hmm. And then I had a similar experience with, with English fans who 
were um, watching, uh, I think, was, was it Euros or something like that. Um, again, we're talking about British Asians, though. Mm. <laughs> I mean, <Yeah>. Not even, <laughs> not, e- yeah. not even, not even uh, Caucasians. Yeah. And again, those comments, not nice. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I, I just, I just couldn't understand why that is. But I think that's that's my only solution, kind of conclusion that I've come to. But you're absolutely right. There's no, there's no room. For, why come to that? Because everything else has gone out the window. Definitely, and I think it's a, it's a lack of education. Lack of education, yeah, like and I think at that moment, I, I don't know what happens with with, with people. Well, I, I think it's it's, it's passion. Well, pe- people, it's passion because it's like. I think a lot of people <coughs> see sport or the, some of the teams that they follow like religious. Yeah. It's like there's yeah. that religious yeah. element yeah. to it. So like we would be passionate about defending Islam in, in sure. a way, right? So I think that um, there's that passion that just fuels into, but then they compromise themselves because they don't, like it doesn't teach them the values that, yeah. Yeah. you know, necessarily a religion would. And um, yeah, I think that, I think, it's uh, being uneducated will mean that you need to come at some other angle using something like race yeah, to, to, yeah. to discriminate. Yeah, resort to yeah, that You resort level. to that yeah, low level, exactly. in my opinion. Our next guest for today is Nick uh, Keith Nicholas. We will call him Sensei Keith Nicholas. He teaches Aikido, Judo, and Jiu-Jitsu. Sensei Nick, uh, Keith Nicholas, good afternoon. Peace upon you and welcome to The Draft Time Show. Uh, good afternoon, man. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, um, I've heard about um, judo. I've heard about jujitsu. There's some people who might not heard, uh, might not have heard about aikido. Um, I want to ask you, Sensei. Would you like to tell our listeners about yourself? What inspired you to take up? Um, the sports what was the reason behind it when did it start what inspired you okay well uh, I used to live next to uh, a um, youth club which used to be an, also be a police club and in the evenings they had loads of young stuff for young people so I joined in for, you know the usual games and um, they used to have judo and kendo so I decided to have a go at that hmm. loved it that was 60 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. And I, I stayed with that club for 55 years. Um, I was a senior youth worker there, promoting the martial arts as a community uh, activity. Um, I used to teach it in other places as well, in schools and colleges, um, local schools, and um, uh, other youth clubs as well as uh, youth centers. Hmm. Because um, I think there was a need for people to do something constructive rather yeah, than just, yeah. you know, uh, kicking the ball around. Yeah. <laughs> now, I want to ask you something, and I, I have I have my own views about this as well, mm. um, having spoken about this topic uh, in regards to another um, uh, subject. Are you satisfied with the level of sports facilities available for the children in the UK at the moment? And if so, or if not so, what do you think can be done to to improve in this regard? Yeah, okay. Well, I feel strongly about this as well. I do believe uh, there is a lack of sporting uh, activities for young people. Um, I think a few years ago, they discouraged uh, competitive sports. Hmm. And I, I disagree with that. I think to build character and spirit, 
people need to compete in a proper way, of course. Yeah. Um, so yes, I, I think they, they, we need to push for more sporting activities in schools. But whether this will work or not, I don't know. Hmm. The thing is, I've I've spoken when when we spoke about knife crime, for example. This is also uh, always one of the the points that is raised that. If you go back 20 years, 15, 20 years, you had youth clubs, you had libraries, you had YMCAs, and you name it, where mm-hmm. youth had um, a way to connect with others. They had an outlet. They had a place to go. And right now, when you see closures of libraries, you don't have that many youth clubs anymore. And if you do, there is a charge to it, which some kids simply said they, they just can't afford it. So they have to look for alternatives, and then, of course, the the arms of 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 the bad company are wide open to to welcome them. Sensei, I want to ask you that: Is there any advice that, in keeping all of this in mind, is there any advice that you can give to parents how they can get involved and encourage their children to be more physically active? But at the same time, I want to ask you as well: What is it that you would like to tell parents who who why why parents should get their kids involved uh, in, in in sports in the first place uh, well first of all it's it's a good way of staying healthy it promotes uh camaraderie it, it makes people come together mm. together uh in my dojo for example i do encourage parents to get involved most of the young people actually come with parents yeah so I try, to, and the pet and the children are treated as adults or small people. Hmm. So the idea is for young people to respect the older generation as well as the older person to respect the young people. So I think the only way uh, we can go forward now is for parents to perhaps lobby their MPs and yeah. local councillors to provide more uh, youth activities. Hmm. And one thing you mentioned earlier on about um, uh, years ago, years ago there was uh, a token payment, but if someone couldn't afford it, yeah. they were allowed in. Yeah. You know, so I think, but over the years, all this is gone now. The, yeah. You know, all the social services, everything's been cut back now, so we've lost that. Yeah. Well, what's a, when you talk about, for example, your, your dojo, what's a, what's a good age to, to get started with, with kids? For parents, I mean, what age are we looking at? So four, five, right. six, seven. Because of the nature of what I do, uh, I teach mainly Aikido. And uh, earlier on, you said you said perhaps I should give an explanation of Aikido. Hmm. But uh, Aikido is quite very, uh, how do I put it, sophisticated. Sure. Um, there's no compet. There's no competition. There's no uh, fighting. Um, there's. It's all about learning to be yourself. Now, the techniques of Aikido are soft techniques hmm. so the main thing is to teach people how to move and gain confidence now the age group I try to encourage is around about actually, I've got a young girl of I think 8 who, who comes Okay. but I prefer them from 9, 10 so they can grasp the basics of, of the techniques sure. judo is a good sport for, for children under that age because it's going to be fun it's grappling, mm. and it can be done in a safe environment. Wonderful. All right, wonderful. Sensei, um, 
Uh, one last question that I have from my side is um, we were just talking about uh, abuse and race. Do you think that people from minority background, they get an equal opportunity and and fair treatment to you know excel in their preferred sports here in the UK at least? Well, I've heard a lot of complaints to, on the, even the media about this sort of thing. But to be honest with you, I think it's just general lack of sporting availability, yeah. activities availability. <clears throat> if they had more uh, act, active sports, then I think more people from all backgrounds can get involved. Hmm. So I don't think it's you know particularly uh, minority groups that are being left out, to be honest. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time, Sensei Keith Nicholas, who teaches Aikido, Judo, and Jiu-Jitsu. Thank you very much for your time, sir. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. 0208-687-7878. Now, one thing that we also need to take a look at, and I, 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 I don't like to use this word on radio, but I rate this society and I mm. rate this part of the world for um, including so many, including people with disabilities hmm. and normalizing things for them yeah. which i i know that in certain countries around the world it's not such a common thing to yeah. see i mean for them to be part of the workforce for them to have facilities where they can go gyms you name it uh, anything and of anything um that you need to have a normal life where you don't feel that you're a, a burden on society where you feel that you're you're independent you're you can do yeah, yeah, independent you know, do exactly. everything yourself and so discrimination in sports on the basis of disability is something that we want to talk about as well one of the least talked forms of discrimination in sports is namely that topic and this is the disability discrimination persons with disabilities they often face societal barriers and disabilities evoke negative perceptions and discrimination in many societies as i said mm. and there are around 11 million disabled people just here in the uk which includes people with physical with visual and hearing impairments and people with of course learning di- difficulties the participation of dis- uh, disabled people in sport is significantly lower than that of non-disabled people for all age groups yeah, the the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities is the first legally binding international instrument to address the rights of persons with disabilities and sport. Article 30 of the convention addresses both the mainstream and disability-specific sport and stipulates that states' parties shall take appropriate measures to encourage and promote the participation to the fullest extent possible of persons with disabilities in mainstream sporting activities at all levels. And I think that's really interesting. I think it's really like important because, and, and, and it's born quite a couple of uh, very good role models, uh, role models for disability in sport as well. We, we've got Ellie Simmons, uh, OBE, who's the swimmer. Like Ellie is a four-time Paralympic champion. Yeah, yeah. You know, she's made her she made her debut at Beijing in twenty uh, two thousand eight and won two gold medals, and broke two world records uh, at the London uh, twenty twelve games. She was awarded an OBE for it, and yeah. and the other one uh, um, is is David Wire, um, CBE wheelchair athlete, who has won a total of six gold medals at the two thousand eight and two thousand twelve Paralympic Games, and has won the London Marathon on eight occasions. <laughs> 
eight occasions. <laughs> that, that is crazy. Um, he, he was he was born with a spinal cord uh, transection that left him unable to use his legs. I think you know it's it's so impressive and it enabling people to yeah. to compete in this way actually th- this made me think of a question actually i had for you earlier as that was what do you think about the competitive thing that the the, uh, the sensei mentioned what, do you think that sports should be competitive because i was thinking about that um and like you know enabling even people with disabilities yeah. to be competitive why and, not and i think uh, look uh, in if it if it's done within um proper means and you know having set m- limits and and, and uh, rules and regulations isn't that what sports is all about yeah it doesn't matter what sport you do if it's not competitive why are you doing it then right. for what's what's the reason behind it i mean you can have physical sports as well as well, online games. Yeah. If you, even if you play FIFA, yeah. <laughs> I mean, on, on your PlayStation it's, or whatever, it's competitive. Yeah. It is. It is going to turn out competitive, and that's what I think. Well, that's what drives you as well yeah. to succeed and to. It, it, do you find that 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 actually that competitiveness is what takes you up a gear that's and it. will make you achieve things? That I'll you tell you one thing. Do? If you, for example, if you, uh, you know, I, I play badminton and I play football on once once a week. Again, I'm, I'm nowhere close <laughs> to being good or anything like that. But I know that if I'm on the weaker team and we have to play a team which is stronger, stronger. You will see a side in yourself that you probably didn't know existed. Yeah. So you will, you will work harder. Right. You will observe more. You will learn more, and you might even end up winning against the stronger yeah. team because you, as a team, as a weaker team, um, apparently, you you worked on it harder, and that's exactly what. And that's how you learn. And I, I've, I've observed this. A friend of mine told me this that if you play for the sake of okay I'm going to play a, a weaker team or I'm going to play a weaker opponent mm. so I win you're never going to learn anything the, the, you will stagnate yeah there's no progress but if you get beaten <laughs> by the other guy over and over again you're going to be like oh come on man I I really need to work on on, on on my game here definitely and I've um when I was younger um I used to play with older children yeah. and I generally felt Again, like that yeah, that yeah, made yeah. me better even <coughs> though I'd get pushed and shoved and but I felt like that that made me better because yeah. I was playing with uh, a more competitive team it sounded like an Australian that made me better <laughs> better better, <laughs> better. <laughs> Our next guest is the CEO at Kick It Out. You might have come across um, uh, that uh, if you are into football. Tony Burnett is with us online. Tony, good afternoon. Peace upon you and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Thank you very much for joining us today. Now, um, I've read about you. I've seen uh, some of the posters as well. But for those of our uh, listeners out there who don't know what Kick It Out is, tell us about your mission, about your goal, about your organization. How did it come about? So we, we were founded 30 years ago. It's actually our 30th anniversary next oh, year. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Yeah, initially founded as as, as the organisation trying to uh, discriminate end racism in football, rather. Hmm. But we now tackle kind of all forms of discrimination. Um, we we work to try and create a game where everyone belongs, um, and so our programmes are really centred around three areas. The first one is is about voice, making sure that lots of different groups have a voice within football and can talk about the challenges they face, and we can work with with groups to eradicate discrimination. 
Second one's education. So we do a lot of education work around football, trying to help football be more inclusive. Um, and the third one's about talent. We we want to try and give access to opportunities in football to people from underrepresented groups. Um, mm. so, so those are kind of our, our three core areas of activity, uh, really. But our, our, our mission is to try and create a game where everyone feels a sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. And if you could like describe for us uh, and explain to us what what are the major discriminations that exist in football and you know what, what's the root cause of we we of were these, thinking about this <laughs> yeah like what is, what is the root cause of these inequalities Ooh, that's a really good question uh, we, we, this is this is I, I guess it's the heart of what we do um, so football doesn't operate obviously in in isolation it's not separate from society and I think what we see in football is is very often a reflection of what's going on in broader society. And I think all of us from, from underrepresented groups would probably recognise that certainly over the last five or six years, we've gone backwards as a society. Yeah. And yeah. We're feel, I'm certainly feeling, and, and I assume some colleagues who are listening and, and, and friends who are listening to the programme, I'm feeling more isolated probably now in the UK than I've done in my 55 years of, of being alive. So football is reflecting that. Um, so last year, for example, just last season, uh, police reported a 99% increase in football-related hate crime. Um, we're seeing that in the professional game. We're also seeing it in the grassroots game where, again, in the last 12 months, I've seen some of the most severe incidents of, of not just discrimination, actually, physical assault hmm. that I've, I've ever seen in, in an environment. And I, I don't think that's... I'm not excusing football, by the way. Football's sure. got a lot, a lot of work to do. I think it's a reflection of really poor behaviour on a national level from some of our politicians that, that that's, have created a culture that's more divided than it's been for a long, long time. And we've got a lot of work to do, I think, to, to try and address that. Now, Tony, I want to ask you also that um, there was a recent research by Ofcom which showed that you know most of the fans, they use social media responsibly. But uh, unfortunately, we still have those who have abusive tweets or comments which are sent to footballers directly every day. In your opinion, if I was looking at the stats as well on your website, if you look at the you know the pro game reports or the 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 different seasons, I mean you start from the nineteen twenty season all the way up to this year's, uh, the number of reports just just on race two hundred and eighty two, uh, this year one hundred and eighty three, and that's a four hundred ninety percent. If I'm reading this correctly, four hundred ninety point three two percent change on uh, the previous year. Why do you think this is and how, 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 what do you do to educate um, the, these, these individuals? I mean, I'm sure it's not in the interest of the clubs. It's not in the interest of how we represent ourselves to the world. We spoke about the, the example of uh, what happened after the, the, the Euro finals where Rashford and Mane, you know, the likes of these who I'm sure they did not miss the penalty on purpose how they were racially abused online as well as you know on uh, off on off the pitch i think it's a combination of things so so we've got better i think football is getting better and yeah. the police are getting better at prosecuting people who, who behave inappropriately online we've been working really hard behind the scenes and with government to try and get the online safety bill pushed through because a lot of the stuff that we see, we all see online and we're all experience uh, unfortunately at the wrong end of the experience of this the abuse, the discrimination, the Islamophobia that we see online, a lot of it's preventable. And and the the online safety bill has to put laws in place that essentially push the social media organisations to take responsibility. When those three 
young men missed the penalties in the Euro 2020 final. We knew what the response was going to be. Yeah. The question is, why didn't the social media organisations put in place the defences to stop that stuff getting through? Because yeah. anyone in that stadium who, who, who was non-white, and a lot of white people, and I don't mean that to sound discriminatory, you know, as a black man, I knew straight away what they were going to get. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I turned to a colleague and said, prepare for the barrage now. Wow. So if we knew that, and we were having conversations about it for weeks, why did like, Twitter and Facebook not put the preventions in place to stop that stuff getting through? That's a very, um, very interesting, yeah. And then the other thing from an education perspective, education's got a huge part to play. You know, ourselves, we work with organisations like New Gym Sports to, to raise um, awareness around some of the issues, particularly around Islamophobia within football. Mm. But we work with a range of partners across other areas to try and make sure that as much as possible, the education is out there. But I also think, I'm not, let's, not be, let's be really clear now, we're in 2022, and I'm not, I don't want to make excuses for people. Um, education's absolutely got a part to play. But there's enough information out there if people really want to engage and understand people who are different. Uh, and the ones who, who tend to perpetrate these appalling behaviours are the ones that are choosing to. You know, yeah. they're, not, they're choosing to be discriminatory and, and abuse people rather than educate themselves. But education has got a part to play, and we we'll yeah. use that wherever we can. Um, lastly, there on 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 this topic, do you, uh, th- there was, you know, I was looking at uh, when Mo Salah came to 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 Liverpool, how that changed the perception, specifically when it comes to Islamophobia. But now having so many players from different backgrounds, it's not. It's everything is international. It doesn't matter which country you go to. There will always be a team. Every team will be a mix of different people from different backgrounds, from different religions. So on that on that level here in the UK does that make a difference if you have let's say muslim players for example you know if you support Benzema you have Pogba you have uh, you know Mo Salah the example that i gave and so many more just here in the premier league does that make a difference to the fans and um, to the fans I don't know actually it's a good question i mean i think Mo Salah is a, is, is obviously a huge hero for liverpool fans yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it, it, it obviously helps from Mo Salah's perspective that he's, he's such a world-class player, you know, probably one of the top three players in the world. Um, and I think fans tend to, to hide any kind of issues when you, you, you're dealing with a, you know, a world-class player. Yeah. I do think on, if, if I look at what's happened in football over the last couple of years around Islamophobia, I think organisations like Nujim have done a, a huge amount. And I think it's no coincidence that now, um, for example, around Ramadan, the, 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 yes. the, the clubs are used to stopping games yes. and, and making sure that, that the right support is in place for players who are observing mm. Ramadan. So I think I think those things are, are, are really improving, and it's and the number of, of, of players of, of Muslim background coming through into mm. the higher echelons of the game now it has to because you know the game has to improve and be welcoming because mm. there are so many top top talented players of a Muslim background there who if we're not a welcoming inclusive environment will choose to go and play in, in other competitive yeah, leagues yeah, across yeah. Europe because of the top talent so it, it's, a, it's a reinforcing self-reinforcing uh, system for me if, if we're inclusive we'll get the best talent we open ourselves up to the, the best supporters who yeah. want to see the best talent if we're not we don't exactly Tony Wonderful to talk to you, sir. It was a great pleasure to have you on. Tony Bernard, CEO at Kick It Out. If you want to go check out their website, it's very, very useful. I'm sure you will learn so much more on that. So go to uh, just search for Kick It, Kick it Out on Google and you will get to that. Thank you very much for, for joining us, Tony. Great to have you on. Thank you Thank so you much. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Take Cheers. care. Bye-bye. 0208-687-7878. Um, kickitout.org. That's it. it. Um, yeah. Now... 
we are slowly slowly but very unfortunately steadily approaching the end of today's program but before we do that i think we want to recap a little bit uh, some of the things that we've mentioned and uh want to thank of uh, thank our guests as well who came on today to speak about this uh this very very interesting topic actually for him five minutes we got left um we were just talking about uh, people with disabilities and you mentioned some of the names uh david weir and ellie simmons obe who <laughs> accomplished things that I don't think I would ever be able to 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 get even close to I mean yeah. London marathon I'll have to practice for that in a couple of years <laughs> <laughs> no it's, it's incredible feat and you know this is the this is the thing about the inclusion and and the inclusivity that we need we will find gems yeah, yeah, out there yeah. that will be able to reach it and if we don't kind of pave the way for them to come forward then we will miss out on some true truly great champions right like if we don't open it, if we don't make it accessible whatever it is from whether it's depending yeah. on your culture because like there's not been many um if i am correct uh not many been uh asian uh players in the premier league as well it's, it's, it's kind of yeah. changing yeah. now but yeah. th- this is something that's uh not been there for a while and i think that if we don't open it up and make this level playing field as we're discussing today then we will miss out on some really truly great champions who could change the sport set new records yeah. you know and, and really evolve and and make us better we're into cricket and hockey i believe <laughs> yeah <laughs> should, should look for yeah i don't them in, in the, in the I don't, cricket I don't. area <laughs> His Holiness has Mirza Masood Ahmed Melabi's helper said during his address at the annual peace symposium on the 21st of March 2009 at the Battle of Tu Mosque here in Morden that human beings are the most eminent of all cre- creation and their intellect distinguishes them from animals they have been given the ability to think both when calm and when angry despite possess- possessing knowledge and intellect they begin to devour each other like animals unfortunately in ignorance people of no faith who might also behave in a similar uh, manner blame religion for this state of affairs even though religion teaches good morals tolerance and patience his holiness further stated that the desire for material progress world fame and dignity has blinded the world this is the reason why nobody pays heed to god's command and when there is no regard <coughs> excuse me for god's commandments then people only fulfill the rights due to others to the extent that their own interests are not affected governments and providers of capital and the un should understand their responsibilities these are to fulfill the requirements of justice and to give due regard to the rights of each other they should think deliberate and find deliberate and find a solution based on justice they should selflessly endeavor to establish peace and most importantly they should fulfill the rights owed to their creator and avoid his displeasure may allah enable all of us to do so you might think that this is talking about politics this is talking about the world stage where you have uh, relations between governments but i think this is something i've noted it trickles down all the way to even the the family units yeah. it starts from government international relations all the way to family units justice fairness 
Definitely, I we were discussing it earlier in, in the previous show as well. Like, you know, these uh, even these uh, international events have yeah. that impact on like yeah. a family. Yeah. Right, we were talking <coughs> about football. Um, I mentioned it before, but um, the apparently the the increase in uh, abuse at home or when England lose. Uh, I, I know of a police officer who mentioned mm. to me that like oh I have to be on duty tonight because they like we get so many an influx of calls yes, um, because you know men are coming home from the, abuse, yeah. you know, from the pub and and, and uh, beating their, their significant other so I think that it's really important and this is just um, great advice from uh, His Holiness that can apply to not just on an international level but on a grassroots level and that's it. Um, so uh, at this point, we would like to say thank you very much to everyone for joining us today. Um, we're going to conclude here with uh, the five o'clock, uh, six o'clock news coming up in just a few um, seconds. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much to Nabila Shah and Durasamin Mirza, today's uh, researchers and producers. Zakala to all of you for listening. And I thank you so much to all of our guests for today, Stephanie Hillborn, Sensei Keith, Nicholas and Tony Burnett for the first half of the program and uh, Josie Dickerson as well as Sarah Martin Denham for the first half of the program. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with the, another show from all of us here at the Draft Time Show and at Voice of Islam. Thank you very much for listening in and have a great evening and a good night. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.